is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies that involve spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, really anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Sarah Wenzel Fisher. Sarah is the executive director of the Kavira Coalition, an innovative conservation organization devoted to building soil, biodiversity, and resilience on Western working landscapes. Kavira was founded over 20 years ago by two conservationists and a rancher, all three of whom were exhausted by the divisive nature of the relationships between the agricultural and environmental communities. By putting their few differences aside and focusing on their many shared values, Kavira has been able to lead many of the West stakeholders towards collaborative, long-term solutions that improve Western landscapes both ecologically and socially. Sarah grew up in a small town in the Black Hills of South Dakota and learned the true value of community at an early age. As she grew older, her interest began to hone in on food, specifically how food and food production play such a huge role in the health and resilience of local communities. Her graduate work focused on the role of small-scale agriculture in New Mexico, and for six years she was the editor of Edible Santa Fe, a New Mexico-based magazine that covers the region's local food scene. Her background made her a perfect fit for Kavira's mission, and her creative mindset and understanding of agriculture have allowed her to successfully lead the organization into its next phase. I had the pleasure of meeting Sarah here in Colorado Springs as she was on the tail end of a massive road trip through the West, visiting with farmers, ranchers, and land managers. We had such a fun conversation and touched on so many of the subjects that are of interest to me and you podcast listeners. We chatted about the specifics of regenerative agriculture and some of the misconceptions among well-meaning environmentalists around grazing as an effective method to fight climate change. And speaking of climate change, we talked about why Kavira does not hesitate to discuss climate change, even though that term can be a hot-button issue among certain groups. We chatted about the idea of rugged individualism, about their concept of the radical center, and about their agricultural mentors program. She offered some advice for aspiring conservationists, and we talked about how her creativity has served her well as a leader. And as usual, we discussed books, films, and her favorite place in the West. I encourage you to visit Kavira's website and also check out their podcast. It's called Down to Earth, the Planet to Plate podcast. If you're a fan of my podcast, odds are you'll enjoy theirs as well. You'll actually probably like it better than mine. But anyway, check the episode notes for links to everything we discuss. Hope you enjoy. Every single one of them is, uh, I ask people when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that? What do I do? I, uh, I sometimes think of myself as a, a cheerleader for food and farming and conservation. Uh, I think on my Instagram page, I call myself a grasslands cheerleader. Uh Um, and I also sort of think of myself as a connector. Yep. Uh, I think all of the work that I've done as an adult and as a professional is really about connecting people to each other and to their place. Um, so I think those are the ideas that undergird what I do. Yep. Yep. And so you've got a really unique background that I want to talk all about, but maybe let's start with your job title and exactly, exactly what you do now on a daily basis. Sure. Um, so I'm the executive director of 
a nonprofit organization called the Kavira Coalition, which is based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, we work to build resilience on uh, arid working lands. And um, how that plays out in the day-to-day is that we are working primarily with ranchers to do um, land conservation work, uh, education, uh, testing new ideas for improving land health, and uh, working on ways to create intergenerational connections for a stronger, more resilient uh agricultural system so pretty easy goals huh yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) well that's uh and so much of that is exactly the kind of stuff i'm interested in and the exact kind of stuff we talk about on this podcast all the time so i'm gonna really bother you with a lot of questions um so i think the first thing that always comes to mind is i I used to live in boulder and you know boulder's full of well-meaning environmentalists but I, what I noticed was that there's a, a misconception among a lot of these highly educated, well-meaning environmentalists that agriculture is not good for the environment. And if you talk to them about it and you explain it, they, they can understand it pretty quickly. But it, it just seems to be a, a misconception that I run into all the time. So can you talk a little bit about how agriculture is, why agriculture is so important for conservation and especially conservation of these Western landscapes? Sure. I mean, I think that a, an entry point for that conversation is just to talk about uh, the amount of land that is in agriculture. You know, it's something like 40% of the United States is in agriculture, uh, either cropland or being grazed uh, for livestock production. And, you know, if you think about 40% half of your yard, you know, it's like we can't talk about um we can't separate out natural spaces from agricultural spaces when you're talking about that huge a percentage of the land mm-hmm. being in agriculture. I think people sometimes don't even realize that agriculture is being practiced in some places when they look at it. They don't know how to see that that's happening there, or they don't sort of connect the dots. Um, and so, uh, and I think that, that um, food is the entry point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if you can start with a conversation about what happens on the table, that somehow that's easier to get people to start thinking about what happens um, in the open spaces where they exist. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I I think food is something that everybody can relate with. And that one of the questions that I'd sent you was, you know, how do you how do you. get this message through to somebody say living in New York city or somebody in Denver who, who has no real daily connection with the land. And I feel like not to answer the question for you, but food is, is the key. And you've got a, you've got a background in food, right? In local, the local food movement. I do. And it's actually the way that I come to this work more is through the lens of food. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, before being the director at Kavira, um, was the editor of edible Santa Fe for about six years. And, um, my graduate research was uh, to look at the economic viability of small direct retail farms in the middle Rio Grande. And um, part of that was just a passion about food and sort of um, an intrinsic understanding about the connections between um, food and farming and understanding that as sort of a um, community organizing principle, you know, it's like everybody eats and 
it's a way to have a conversation about other kinds of planning issues or um, resource management or infrastructure issues, uh, literally as if we can all sit down at the table together and break bread and have a conversation. And so to me, there's a lot of logic in having food be an entry point for um, community organizing. Um, So how did your interest in food get started? I mean, how did you... What was the the first thing that entered your mind that then led you on this career and the graduate studies and all that kind of stuff? So I studied uh, community and regional planning at the University of New Mexico and um, was really interested in the way that cities function. And um, my career path has been hugely meandering. That's great. I love (laughs) Um, that. I I, uh, studied creative writing as an undergrad and... um, then sort of dabbled in the arts and uh, doing art, I realized that every project that I worked on, I was using art as this vehicle to bring people together to talk about place. Interesting. And um, I was really involved in my neighborhood association in Albuquerque and um, in other kinds of uh, social organizing activities. And I realized that the art piece was less important to me. Mm -hmm. I was less concerned with sort of um, conceptual ideas and how to manifest them and really uh, saw creative practice as a way to bring people together in an interesting kind of dialogue. And um, so from there, I decided to get a planning degree. It made a lot more sense to uh, study those things. And once I dug in a little bit deeper to this idea of um, community and regional planning, because in New Mexico, we don't, and other places it's called urban planning, but as we only have one urban center yeah. there, you <laughs> call it something else. Um, and, uh, in that particular field, you know, there's people who, uh, specialize in transportation or in housing. And the one piece of the conversation that was missing was food. And I'm sort of one of those people that's always like, what's missing here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that was what really got me interested. And I've, I've always been fascinated by food. Like as a kid, I would, you know, make my mom set up a video camera and I would do cooking shows <laughs> in the kitchen and, awesome. um, have always really enjoyed the immediate act of, of making food. And so, um, when I was in graduate school and started, noticing that food was a really absent part of the conversation in the world of planning. Um, I decided to explore that a little bit. And the more I dug into it, I realized how uh, really crazy our food systems are Uh in this country, um, how crazy our agriculture systems are in terms Uh of what they do to the landscape and the environment and um, how, you know, it, I just, it was like, the world opened up to me and I realized that this is something that I want to spend a lot of time thinking about and engaging in. And so, um, yeah, I did my graduate research on small farms in the Albuquerque area. And I then sort of wore every single food related hat that you could possibly wear in the Albuquerque area. I, um, ran farmers markets. I worked at the natural foods co-op there running the membership, um, I'm on the board of a agricultural land trust. I worked for the National Young Farmers Coalition for a while. Um, worked for Edible for a bunch of years, and um, you know, just tried to dive in wherever I could. Yeah. Uh, 
where there was a conversation about food and farming happening. So going back to the the beginning of that, when you said you had an, you know, you had an interest in place and where did that come from? Because I've gotten real interested in that, in that. And I grew up in a small community and, but it, it wasn't until a few years ago that I really started to appreciate and understand the importance of, com, you know, community and understanding a place. And so, I mean, wh- first of all, where did you grow up? So I, I grew up in the Black Hills in South Dakota okay. uh, in a little town called Custer. Yep. And I, my answer to your question is I think that that's where my sense um, and uh, real joy and exploring sense of place comes from is growing up in a small town. How many people live there? uh, 1,800 people. Yeah, got it. And it's sort of a a big hub city for that area. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, you know, for that area, that's kind of, kind of big. Yeah. Uh, It's, I mean, there are only 800,000 people who live in all of South Dakota. And so that's a a sizable community for that state. Um, But I still have uh, strong connections. None of my family is there Uh anymore, but I go back there all the time and, I'm still friends with the person I was, uh, who was my best friend in first grade. That's uh, so cool. She still lives there, lives in her parents' house. But you know, I was um, I was real aware as a kid of of how wonderful that place was. How you were as a kid? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I um, I think I had a really deep sense of appreciation for you know having all these big public lands as our backyard mm-hmm. and you know the freedom that I got as a kid to just run around this small town and um, that I think inspired me to to want to create that other places that I went and um, try to understand how it works other places sure. and I also think I came from a family that was really engaged in that um, what does your folks do there uh, my folks are are both in the medical practice my dad's a doctor and my mom is a nurse and yeah. they my dad ran the um, county clinic and the regional hospital that's there. the center of community you know yeah. I mean that's one of the the pillars of community um, that's really cool yeah, and then my mom was um, just always so I I've got a lot of siblings, um, I've got four brothers and a sister, and oh, wow. uh, so she you know she was always doing a lot of organizing around um, education and and kids related activities, and um, so it's like you know I remember them getting the public pool up and running, yeah. and you know starting different kinds of uh, after school programs, and um, I think that that also really inspired me in terms of creating community and sense of place. Sure. Thinking about the West and community, you know, when you, when you read these, the history of the West, you know, there's this idea of rugged individualism and everybody moving out and getting their plot of land. And then nobody, you know, they do their own thing and don't interact with anybody else. But the reality is that's a myth and it doesn't work. I mean, you have to have these communities, especially here in the West where the resources are so, um, um, scant in a lot of ways. So do, can you talk a little bit about that, about this kind of the idea of, of establishing these communities of ranchers or in your work now or, or growing up compared to this idea of I'm going to move out West. I'm going to do everything by myself. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to take the conversation off topic, but I feel like it might be a good moment to talk a little bit about the radical center. Yes. yes, um, Which is a, an idea um, that is sort of the foundational to the Kavira coalition, my current work. Um, And the, the radical center is this idea of uh, 
people um, with different viewpoints being committed to working together and having a practice of um, finding a, a way to all sit down at the table and, and talk to each other and mm-hmm. find areas where they can collaborate and work together. And um, one of the things that I, I do think that uh, rugged individualism is a myth in the West also. And yeah. that, um, but when you were talking about living in a more urban space, uh, I've been having some interesting conversations lately, uh, thinking about, um, political, uh, um, polarization mm-hmm. and how, you know, it feels like right now the, the political climate, uh, at the national level is intensely polarized and there's a, a tendency to, um, characterize, uh, particularly rural areas as being, you know, um, people just at odds with one another. And I think that that's also false. I agree. And um, I think that there's a lot more nuance um, to that discussion. And that's sort of at the heart of what is the radical center. Yeah, I think uh, not to get too off track on national politics, but it, it seems to me that there's just there's really loud people on both ends of the spectrum. On the extreme ends, they're really loud. Thanks to social media and the internet, they they have a voice, a more voice than they've had in the past. And I think that middle, I mean, it could even be the middle eighty percent, is reasonable reasonable people who will listen to other people's ideas. I think this idea, you know, this just loud polarization. I I don't know that it really reflects what's happening in in real communities where people have to live together. Um, because once you get to know somebody in a community and you understand where they're coming from, it's a lot easier to accept their point of view or at least have a conversation instead of this just polarizer. I'm not talking to that person because you can't, you can do that on Twitter, but you can't do that if you're living in a community with somebody, you see them every day. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the, the, the idea of the radical center. Where did that come from? Who, who came up with that idea with that term? Um, so the, term i believe that the term was being used um at the federal level yeah. uh there was a um an idea of sort of uh cross aisle um you know bipartisan activity that yeah. uh some political scientist was writing about the the radical center and um there were a number of folks who were both environmentalists but that were working with ranchers mm-hmm. in the west who sort of um adopted that idea and and really applied it to the context that they were in. So um, there was a handful of groups. There's a group called the Malpai Borderlands Group uh, in southern Arizona and the Kavira Coalition. I think there are a handful of others who were bouncing this idea around in their conversations. And um, the Kavira Coalition was founded by two members of the Sierra Club and a rancher. And this rancher came to a oh, meeting cool. of the Sierra Club. Uh, this was in 97. And um, you know, they were having, uh, these really not very fruitful conversations about, um, I think it was an issue in the Gila mm-hmm. and, uh, trying to kick cattle off of public lands. And this rancher showed up and said, you know, I'm, I consider myself a conservationist. And I think that there is a way that we can reframe this conversation where we can all get what we need out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, in some ways, the founding of our organization, but also of this idea of the radical center, and um, you know, from that 
grew a whole number of different activities where we tried to create space for um, those kinds of people to come together and sort of talk about what their different priorities were in terms of um, keeping lands healthy and having those lands uh, be productive Mm -hmm. for the people who needed to use them and the um, ecology that needed to use them and that kind of thing. And um, so it's, you know, I think it's it's grown and evolved from there. But uh, the actual, there's sort of a manifesto around the Radical Center that you can read on our website. Yeah, I saw that. Um, and it's, it's, I love rereading that because um, every time I read it, I'm just like, they did a really good job with this. Like yeah. it's still, after 20 years, resonates That's and cool. doesn't, there's not a lot that needs to be modified here, you know? And it, it talks about how, uh, polarization um, has really been a detriment to the West and how we have to figure out ways to work together and to be hopeful um, and be engaged on the land together uh, if we're going to make things work in a place where we've got a lot of land and not a lot of people. Yeah. I think it resonates even more. I mean, obviously I wasn't in the middle of it back in back 20 years ago, but I mean, things are a lot more polarized now than they were then. I mean, those were the good times back then, relatively speaking. And um, I mean, everybody, you know, it was on the lead up to the to the dot com boom, and there weren't any wars, and you know, everybody was pretty happy back then compared to now. And so, I think it's um, it's pretty amazing how how it resonates more now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I you know, I think that at a at a at a national level and in the media. Things are portrayed as more polarized, but on the ground, I actually think that people are doing a much better job of working together. And it's amazing to me how many organizations out there are doing this kind of work. Um, uh, we do a podcast also. It's called yeah. Down to Earth. Yep. Um, and one of our recent interviews was with a group called um, uh, the Sage Grouse. I'm going to get it wrong. Um, yeah, the... Um I'll put I'll put a link to that, but is um, it Sage Sage Grouse Initiative? Yes, yes. Sage Grouse Initiative, yes, yes. and you know I think that that is uh, classic Radical Center work. You know, it was a, a group of um, folks from uh, state and federal agencies and ranchers, and everybody uh, you know recognized that the current way that endangered species policy works just makes everybody's life more difficult Mm -hmm. if um, a species gets listed as endangered. And so um, recognizing that, you know, people get on the same page Mm -hmm. and they they work together and they understand their shared values. And it's pretty amazing um, the types of conservation work that are happening um, in those kinds of contexts and those landscapes. And, you know, I could probably make a list of two or three dozen uh, regionally based organizations like that that are um, sort of under the radar Mm -hmm. and working at a community level to identify ways that they can um, meet the expectations of what federal law says Mm -hmm. and actually make those lands, you know, productive and useful for folks who are ranching them, recreationalists, environmentalists, you know, I I think there's, we can do that. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Well, that's, one of the reasons I decided to start this podcast is because I operate in this kind of weird world, uh, overlap of all these different worlds, you know, the ranching world, the farming world, conservation world, athletics. Um, and, and there's this huge overlap 
where everybody has similar values and it just doesn't get any uh, it's not clickbait on the internet and it's not it's not angry stuff it's it's happy and it's nuanced stuff that takes a long time to talk about which is why these podcasts are so long <laughs> but it's um you know i I just hope more people can can focus on or understand that there's so much good stuff happening. I'm glad to hear what you said about there's more collaboration now than ever, um, because that's you know that's that goes against what you would think if you're just reading the news every day. Absolutely. Well, and I I think that the other thing that I see as and I think that we talked about this when we talked earlier is just how um, you know the media loves to portray Westerners um, sort of as archetypes. And when you actually sit down and talk to people, uh, they identify in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like somebody will, you know, call them, maybe they work for the Forest Service and they call themselves a hunter, but their family also runs cattle. And, um, you know, maybe they're deeply passionate about, you know, a certain endangered species. Yep. And, you know, it's like, there's a lot of a nuance there. And I think that that's what makes the West a, a rich place to live in. Oh, it definitely does. I mean, I, being from North Carolina, I remember the first time I went to an event with the Colorado Cattlemen's Land Trust and I showed up and everybody there is decked out in the full cowboy gear. And, you know, I'm wearing my khaki pants. And, and it, I was so on edge because I was like, I don't fit in here. I don't fit in here. But the minute you get past that, that shell of the, the outfit and you start talking, there's some, uh, you know, they're, they're, we got much, 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 much more in common than we do different. And so it's just a matter of breaking down those, looking past the first impression um, I mean, that's a cliche and you hear it all the time, but it's a cliche because it's true and it's especially true out here. Yeah. Um, so speaking of kind of this, this political stuff and looking past the, the first impression, I noticed on your website, you guys are, are very clear about climate change and your, your thoughts on climate change. And I think pretty much everybody agrees the climate is changing, but for some reason that term climate change sets people off. Cause I've had conversations with ranchers where there's, they say, I don't believe in climate change. But then in the next sentence, they're talking about, well, it's sure it never gets cold like it used to. So they're, they're, they're saying that the climate's changing. It's just something about that term. So how do you, what, what was y'all's thinking in that? I mean, because it's an important thing and you don't want to alienate people and you want to bring people in. But how do you balance that with just the facts that the climate is changing? Sure. So, I mean, I think that... Uh until I became the director, we were always really cautious about really? where we would use that language. And I feel like it is uh, an important conversation to be having. It's it, it's the most important conversation to be having in some ways. And um, I don't feel like our job is to convince people that climate change is real or to get into a debate about what, um, the causes are. And, um, in some ways, you know, it's like, if people want to engage in that conversation, we will, but I think that more important is just that we put it out there that, you know, we believe that this is happening. And, um, we also believe that, you know, good conservation and good agriculture are really two of the critical pieces to, um, changing that scenario. Um, but you know, I think that it, uh, raises another interesting point about the radical center, which is about language Mm -hmm. and how 
the language that we use is so important and how we frame a conversation is so important. And, um, I recognize that there are a lot of ranchers who don't want to get into that conversation either. And, you know, if we try to have a conversation about climate change, we're going to miss having what's the real important conversation, which is where we've got common ground around um, water and soil. Sure. Or, you know, water cycles and carbon cycles. Um, And those are things that we can talk about. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to talk about climate change at all, even though it's the, you know, uh, two different sides of the same coin. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, if people don't want to talk about it, that's fine. I think it's important for us as an organization to not, um, beat around the bush that that's what we're working on. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, underlying that even if climate change wasn't happening with the number of people that we have on the planet, it's really critical for us to be talking about how we utilize our resources, how we think about those resource cycles. Um, and so, you know, that means thinking about water and soil and that's what we're doing as an organization essentially is figuring out how we look at those bigger natural cycles and how we engage in them Mm -hmm. and how we can, um, engage in them in ways that's not extractive, um, that's regenerative and that builds resilience in systems that enable people and plants and animals and microbiology all to coexist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your, your mission is, is very, it's a very lofty mission and, and it's not like, like in my world of conservation, you can measure, you know, how many, how many acres did you put under easement? And, and there, there, there are a lot of kind of quantitative ways you can measure this, whereas yours is more relationship based, which, you know, in a lot of ways I think is without that relationship based stuff, nothing happens. And so it's, it's, it's very, very, very important, but it's hard to measure. So when you're looking at when the year's over and you look back, how do you measure success for you, for your organization? Um, I mean, we have some some quantitative measures, and they're sort of the same in some ways as other conservation organizations. Yep. You know, how many um, miles of creek did we impact, or how many structures did we build to control erosion, or yep. how many acres of rangeland did we, you know, impact on a particular project? Um, the on-the-ground projects that we do tend to be, I think, small in comparison to our, our total impact in our community. I think more of what we're doing is relationship building um, and education. Um, and so on the ground, there are those metrics that we use. Um, another program that we have is a an agricultural apprenticeship program. Yes. We're one of the few organizations in the country that has a ranching apprenticeship program. And, you know, that's a pretty easy quantitative metric. It's, you know, how many people have graduated from that program and are um, still in agriculture. So that program started about 10 years ago. It's really started as a very small, um, we focused on, uh, quality over quantity of folks coming out of the program. Um, So for the first, I think, six or seven years, we worked with three to five um, agricultural operations a year and placed people there for about a year to have them um, mentor with uh, somebody who's a really skilled rancher to learn that trade. And to date, I think we've graduated almost four dozen folks wow. out of our program, and I would, th- I think, ninety percent of them are still in 
agricultural careers. Um, some of them are directly ranching or farming, and some of them are in uh, sort of more ancillary roles like an NRCS range specialist or those kinds of positions. But um, I think we've had a really high rate of success um, and so that's one way that we measure it is, and, and, and that's a more measurable network Yes, um, because those are all people that we can still be in touch with and follow and check in and say, you know, how's your, how's your sure. career going? Sure. Um, and, uh, and then there's a lot of qualitative ways in which we measure our success. Um, you know, uh, what are the new relationships that we've struck up for the year? Are there new collaborations, um, you know, we try to work, I think almost everything that we do in our organization is in partnership mm-hmm. with somebody else. There aren't, there are very few activities where it's just us yep. doing something. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's another way that we measure success. Um, and yeah, so it's, they're, they're not conventional ways that we're measuring it, but, uh, well, I think that's, that's why it's innovative. You know I mean? You're, you're doing innovative work that is not it's not being done on like a, a huge scale by lots, a ton of different organizations. So you're, I mean, you're kind of figuring it out, which I mean, I think that's, I think that's awesome. Um, so you, you mentioned some of these on the ground projects that you do. Can you give an example of one of those just so people listening can, can like a, an example that comes to mind of a successful kind of on the ground, whether it was habitat restoration or, or anything like that. Is there, do you have an, uh, project that comes to mind is a, that was a success yeah i mean we we sort of have our um uh our, our shining star project which is um working in the carson national forest on the comanche creek okay um and we've been doing that project for about 15 years really or maybe this is our 16th year working um in that area and just sort of as a side note to that comment or idea, I think one of the things that people don't often think about in doing this kind of work, working um, in agriculture, working in conservation, um, change on the landscape takes a long time. I mean, building relationships uh, takes a long time, but even longer time is the amount of um, years that it takes to restore a stream or to restore a grassland. And um, also the scale means that it takes a long time. Um, cause if you're talking about an entire watershed, uh, impacting all of those acres yeah. is, you know, you're, unless you've got millions and millions of dollars, which most conservation organizations don't have, uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. And so, um, that project is, is pretty incredible. Um, the, uh, Cutthroat trout was a, often these projects also sort of hinge around a species of some kind. So um, this trout is uh, in danger, uh, in danger of getting listed as an endangered species. And all these groups um, come together because they recognize that if it gets listed, it's going to prevent lots of different groups of people from being able to use the landscape. Mm -hmm. And um, I think everybody has an underlying interest in seeing the landscape improved. And I think that there was a point at which uh, it was hard to get the grazing association to come to the table. And um, because our founder and director at the time, Courtney White, had a good relationship um, with some of those folks, um, he was able to get 
some of those folks to the table. And um, that started this now 16-year partnership, which interestingly, um, you know, it started as a a series of um, creek restorations Mm -hmm. um, based on the ideas of this guy, Bill Z. Dyke, who is sort of a um, watershed restoration guru. Um, And he has an amazing story and I would encourage everybody to check out his work and his background. But uh, he was the, I I think he was the first ecologist for the forest service ever (laughs) in the country. Um, and, uh, but so, um, we started doing this, this work with him and it, it grew from being, um, you know, just doing the restoration to doing a series of experiments to demonstrate that there are low cost um, techniques that you can use for erosion control to uh, slow down water in certain landscapes, spread it out, get it to go where it needs to go because water is pretty critical in conservation work. You know, it's sort of sure. this really basic idea that uh, I think gets overlooked because it is so basic. You know, it's like where the water is, is where the plant and habitat is happening and without that you know everything is falling apart it is the thing that really glues things together and so um, we started testing these different techniques um, in that space and so the the pattern has been um, you know every couple of years we identify well what's a new technique that we want to try out to uh, work on whatever is the next phase that needs to get restored in this creek system um, and so testing one rock dams and zuni bowls and um, I I brought you this stack of books over here and this one here is a terrible name, the plug and spread treatment. This is another type of water diversion, um, to, for, uh, uh, erosion control and, um, moving water across the landscape in a way that's restoring wetlands. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, you know, every couple of years we test something and then we do a publication like this that becomes a technical guide wow. uh, to help other people understand how to do these techniques. So, um, you know, this this project of the Radical Center didn't just heal this one watershed. It actually helped us to innovate a number of techniques that then we can help propagate in other places. And so um, back to the conversation about the Sagegrass Initiative, uh-huh. uh, an interesting success story is that they took these techniques and have been using them in um, the Gunnison Basin um, to restore sage-grouse habitat there and have had what sounds like really good success um, using these techniques in an environment that they weren't really initially tested in or designed for, Mm -hmm. but it's um, helping to uh, increase their grass riparian area Mm -hmm. um, and... uh, so to me, that's, that's part of what our, our success is. And, um, uh, you know, these on the ground projects that we're doing are, um, exciting to me because they're not just about the specific area where we're doing the work. It's about what are the ideas that we're generating and yep. then how are we sharing them with others? That's really cool. And I, I wasn't fully aware of that, of that aspect. I mean, I knew you guys were doing important work, but I didn't realize there was this aspect of almost, you know, do it and then blast it out on a megaphone so other people can replicate it. 
That's really powerful. Um, so if we're in this project in particular that, that we were just talking about, the restoration, who is funding that? Where's the funding coming from for that? Um, well, the funding uh, for that particular project, most of the funding is coming through um, conservation grants through the USDA. Okay. Um, and But what's another interesting, successful piece of this story that doesn't get told often is that um, – as a result of the longevity of this project and sort of the innovative techniques that have come out of it, um, it has drawn some national interest. And while we, you know, for the first 15 years of the project had these limited little pools of money um, through conservation grants, uh, it caught the attention of um, Coca-Cola. And now they are investing um, through Pittman Robertson dollars, uh, many millions of dollars in doing additional restoration there as wetland mitigation. Wow. Um, and so, you know, that's another piece of how we measure success is that we're actually, um, able to magnetize, um, other money to come in and help with conservation work. And I, you know, I can't claim that <laughs> alone as Kavira because this has been a, you know, hugely collaborative project, like sure. dozens and dozens and dozens of partners engaged in making it happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that's really amazing. And I, I wasn't aware of any of, of any of that or the scale of it. Um, so that brings me to hearing you talk so in such technical detail about all this, it makes me wonder, or my question is, how did you go from being a writer to being, I mean, you're, you know, writers are obviously, they can take in a ton of information, synthesize it, put it out so that you can understand it, which is just what you just did. But I mean, what, how did you make that leap from, from being mostly, uh, mostly in the writing world to, to this, this extremely technical <laughs> kind of stuff? Well, I mean, I have to say that I'm I am not the technical person on staff, and I, I um, I'm somebody who loves to learn, and so I lo and and I do like to write, and so I do feel like I have those skills to take in information and synthesize and yep. um, put it back out there. Um, I, you know, I I know, you know, just the very surface level of this stuff, and there are folks who um, are really highly trained experienced, um, uh, restoration ecologists who work with us, um, and are on staff who really produce the, um, harder part of this and sure. figure out what the implementation looks like. And, um, well, I think obviously their work is extremely important because it wouldn't happen without it. But I think without your ability to put it into terms that the people at Coca-Cola can understand, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's extremely, um, important. Have, has, what other aspects of your kind of creative mindset has, has helped you in this conservation career that you've, you've got going? Is there any, I mean, it, cause it seems like uh, for a lot of the people I interview, you know, on this podcast, the, the backgrounds are so varied. I mean, some of them have creative backgrounds. Some of them have hardcore science backgrounds. Some of them didn't even go to, didn't even go to college. And so wh what do you think, what other aspects of this, of your creative career, your prior creative careers have allowed you to be successful in this? Um, I mean, I think almost all of it contributes mm -hmm. in one way or another. Sure. Um, you know, I think that, uh, understanding how creative practice works helps me bring that into a conversation and in, 
uh, invites people to engage in that themselves. Um, so I think that that's really useful. Sure. Um, I think that having skills in terms of, um, visualization or articulation, um, is really useful. I also feel like, um, creative skills are also like translation skills, um, where, you know, it's like, how do you, uh, take an idea and translate it into something physical is often what happens with artwork. Um, but, in the world of conservation, sometimes it's like, how do you, um, you know, take an idea about ranching and translate it into terms that the urbanite rock climber in Colorado Springs can understand. Sure. Um, so I think that that's, uh, one of the ways in which I engage that skill set. Um, and I think that there's also just something about who I am that comes out of, um, growing up in a rural place and, um, you know, I think we were talking about this before, but I think that there's a kind of a character where people are multifaceted. They are, you know, uh, take on a lot of different trades because they have to. And I see that in myself as well and um, really embrace that in all of the work that I do. And, and I have a capacity to see how those things are connected. Yeah. Um- so are there any, do you have any mentors, either professionally, personally, mentors, heroes that have, that you look at and they've, they've played a big role in your career, just the way you think about things? And it could be people you know, you've worked with, or just, you know, historical figures that you've read about that have been dead for a hundred years. Um, I feel like there are a lot of them. It's hard yeah. to know exactly uh, who to talk about or, or where to, um, to start with that. Um, just the, the first one that comes to mind. Well, I was, I was actually thinking about, um, uh, I guess the first ones, and I don't know exactly why they came to mind, um, is, a a couple of folks, um, a guy named Chris Wilson. Okay. Uh, he, uh, for a long time directed the historic preservation program, okay. uh, in the school of architecture at the university of New Mexico. And, um, I studied with him in school and he was, uh, an amazing teacher. Uh, he's a really good writer, um, incredible analytical thinker, um, and thinks really deeply about the landscape. And I feel like I, um, was able to, uh, like, he is able to talk about, um, sort of both ecologically what's happening in the landscape and what culturally is happening in the landscape and how those things intersect, mm -hmm. uh, in a very eloquent way. Um, and so I would say he's somebody who has inspired me a lot and I think also taught me a lot about teaching. Nice. Um, cause I also sort of consider myself to be a teacher that's sort of fundamental Definitely. to what I do. And I, I feel like I've got a real education ethic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, um, uh, there's a, another woman who's a faculty person at UNM, um, Virginia Scharf, okay. who uh, is a, a pretty serious feminist and um, is somebody who's very passionate about food. And I really enjoyed studying with her. And I feel like she's one of those people who's always asking really hard questions. Mm -hmm. And I like that also. Definitely. I, I, I find that, you know, I, I seek mentorship in people who are going to um, kind of prod me a little bit. Definitely challenge my ideas. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. Most people don't seek that out. You know, I think, uh, people like to be being challenged, having your ideas challenged is extremely uncomfortable. 
Yeah, it is. But I also think that that's one of the things I love about the Radical Center is and is part of my practice of that idea uh-huh. is wanting people to challenge my ideas Yeah, because I think it helps me either reinforce them or helps me reframe them in a way that um, it's important. You know, it's like I don't want to get too stuck in the way that I, I agree. see or believe or exist in the world. And Wouldn't that be the worst if like 20 years from now you look back and you, you thought the exact same thing that you thought 20 years ago? Be That'd so be my boring. worst nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> People think they know everything. I was actually texting with a buddy of mine the other day and we were talking about the exact, that exact thing. And I said almost exactly what you said, but less eloquently that, you know, I love having my mind changed, you know, and if somebody says something I don't agree with, best case it changes my mind, which is, would be pretty cool. Worst case, it just makes me more confident in what I already thought. I mean, that's a good deal. Why wouldn't you be open to that? Well, why wouldn't anybody? You're open to it. But. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, you know, I think that that's part of what um, I aspire to do uh, sort of personally and professionally is um, encourage people to be inquisitive, mm-hmm. um, to engage with people who don't think like them, um, to think creatively yep. and sort of, you know, be constantly in conversation with their ideals. Sure. Yeah. I think, uh, that's great So, Kind of along the line of mentors, um, are what books have been impactful in your understanding of, I'll just keep it specific now, food and farming. Cause I'm look. I need more books on farming. I've read every book there, or not every, but I've read a ton of books on ranching. And so I've got my head around that. But farming is something I'm trying to to learn more about. Sure. So, um, uh, I mean, somebody who I, I, I know him, he's an acquaintance. Wes Jackson, I think, is somebody that everybody should read. Um, pretty much anything he's written, he's the founder of the Land Institute in okay. Kansas. And, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, their project there is uh, working to like really radically shift the way we talk about and practice agriculture from um, an annual agriculture to a perennial agriculture. So they're trying to um, develop grain varieties that are perennial grain varieties, which. Yep. Would, you know, it's like our agriculture for thousands of years has been rooted in annual production of fruits and vegetables and grains. And so that's that's very radical. Um, but he's also an incredibly eloquent writer. I love um, all cool. of his books. Uh, the Third Plate by Dan Barber, I yep. think, is a really great primer. Um, I've used that actually as a textbook for a couple of food and farming classes that I've really? taught at UNM. Um, he's a, the chef at Stone Barns. Uh, Blue Hill is the restaurant okay. that's there. That's in New York. Um, but uh, he sort of takes a deep dive into what is agriculture? How does it work? How does it show up in our refrigerators and on our dinner tables and... Uh, is a great storyteller. It's really eloquent. Nice. Um, uh, I also, this isn't farming related, but it, it touches on some themes of food. Um, there's a woman named uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, mm-hmm. and she has a book called Braiding Sweetgrass. That book has come up so many times on it's, this podcast. It is an amazing book. She's, okay. a, she's also a really great storyteller, and um, there's a couple of ideas in that book that I love. She talks about reciprocity uh-huh. and that's one of the things I sort of, uh, also a fundamental idea in the work that I do is sort of like, I think that part of the shift from, um, extractive 
ways of using the land um, to regenerative ways of using the land um, really has to do with shifting the way we um, place value and resources and um, figuring out how to be better at sharing. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like such a simple idea, but I think it's huge. And part of that is, is, is reciprocity, you know, how we have reciprocity with each other, but also how do we have reciprocity with the land? Interesting. Um, so she talks a lot about that in that book, but has some beautiful stories that she tells to frame it. Um, I need to read that because it's come up from such a wide variety of people that on the surface, their careers are not related, but it, it continues to come up. Um, and then I, I sent this to you when we first met, but um, uh, Nathan Sayers' new book, The Politics of Scale. Okay. Uh, and that's more, that's not about farming. That's about the history of range science. But I yep. think that that um, imparts a lot of really interesting information about how the West has gotten to be what it is today. Um, I, I have not read anything by him. Um, did you say you sent it to me? No, I, I just sent you the title of the oh, book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I did not, I did not send um, that book. No, his name continues to come up. And actually, um, I had a, a woman named Sarah King on the podcast a while back. He's with the Alter Valley Conservation Alliance. Yeah. And he's going to be speaking at their um, – they have an annual event in September, and yep. he's going to be speaking there. So I, I had so many books I need to read. And then the, the other person who I think is – a really great foundation for understanding at a pretty deep level agriculture is, um, Gary Napan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, uh, his, uh, um, list of publications is pretty long. Uh, where our food comes from is a great one that talks about, um, biodiversity and agriculture. And I know that he has a new book coming out that is specifically about food and farming at the radical center. Um, so I, I'm not, I think it maybe will be out in August or September of this year. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that when I haven't read it, but I assume that it'll be good because he's also a really eloquent writer. Those rarely does somebody come on here and list off a bunch of books, and I haven't at least <laughs> read one of them. But a lot of those I hadn't even heard; I didn't even know the author. So that's great. I started a list on the on my website of all of good farming books. I basically reached out to listeners on Instagram and I said, "What's your favorite book on farming?" And so I've got this list; it's probably like twenty five books now. So I'll add I'll have these in the episode notes for your episode, but I'll add them to that list too. Great. Um, and if I think of some others, I'll send them to you yeah, as well. Yeah. Keep, keep them coming. Um, well, so, you know, you're leading this organization and you guys are, are running in so many different directions and you're doing so much cool stuff. And I'm sure you get calls from people all the time saying, how can I come work there? I want to get in the conservation, conservation world. Cause I get those and I'm not even you know, in a position to be hiring anybody <laughs> and people are always saying, you know, how, how do I get into conservation? I want to do it. So what would, what's your advice to, to young people? Let's say, first of all, to young people coming out of school who want to be in conservation. And then maybe people that are 30 years old that have kind of mid, you know, early career, but want to make a hard turn and get into conservation. What do you look for in employees or, or people that you would hire? So, um, I mean, I, I think that I look for um, a passion for the work and um, a capacity to be a really good facilitator. Um, I think a, a vision for what kind of work can happen at the intersection of conservation and agriculture. Um, I actually have 
we've uh, invited a, a large number, not a large number, but you know, for an organization that has six regular staff people, um, we have a lot of interns um, who come in, and I, you know, if people want to come and do a project with us and they have a very specific idea and it's not something that's totally unreasonable. Um, I try as much as possible to create space for that. So it's not, you know, a a paid employment job, but I feel like any way that I can create a, a collaborative space like that or an entry point for somebody to have an experience to put on their resume, like I'm going to try to make that happen. Yep. And I think that that makes our work more rich by having those, you know, young and idealistic perspectives there yep. um, in our work. I mean, I think that uh, when I get those questions, um, what I I love giving talks at at like university um, environmental planning or water resources classes because yeah. those kinds of questions always come up and my answer is always to encourage people to get into agriculture and uh, because I think that what appeals to a lot of folks about conservation is um, an ability to like be on the land and be engaged in um, the processes that are happening there and we need people in agriculture and there's really no better way to do that. I mean, there are positions, you know, working as a public land manager, but the reality of your job is going to be 90% behind a desk and 10% in the field. And if you want a 90% in the field and a 10% behind the desk job, you should become a farmer. Uh And, um, the world needs farmers right now. Um, you know, the, I can do my little statistics spiel, but, um, you know, the average age of a farmer in this country is 60 years old. Wow. Um, a hundred years ago, more than 30% of our population was engaged in agriculture as a primary, um, work. Mm -hmm. And today less than 2% of the population is involved in agriculture. And of that 2%, 2% is under the age of 35. So we have this huge knowledge attrition issue wow. in agriculture. And to me, that's that's a critical issue because those people are stewards of 40% of our land in this country. Yeah. You know, And it's like, how do we transfer that knowledge from one generation to the next? And how do we make sure that we don't find ourselves in this position again where we have a total breakdown in um, what's happening with knowledge exchange around producing food and stewarding land? Yeah, And so... I would say when somebody asks the question, how do I pursue a career in conservation? I'd say, go work with a rancher for a year or go work on a farm for a year. Um, Because we need people who are both producing food and who are um, being good conservationists. And I I think those things are actually the same. Yeah. That's that's smart. Nobody's ever given that answer, but I think that's very, very wise. Because I do think, especially with young people coming out of college, they think, that concert, if you work in conservation, you're outside all day long and you're, you know, basically doing what a, a rancher or a farmer does. But, you know, in, in my side of conservation, it's real estate transactions. I mean, that's that's what it is. It's lawyers and it's contracts and this and that. It's not, I mean, there is plenty of visiting visiting the ranches, but you're reading contracts all day. <laughs> and so I think that's, and, you know, worst case with the farming thing, you, you, you get out there or ranching, you get out there and you do it. And it builds you builds these skills to allow you to that would make you a better conservationist if you did choose to go the the sit behind a desk route. Well, and, the, and I think that you know um, the people who are the most successful conservationists that I work with are people who are doing both 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, most farms in this day and age, people have off-farm jobs. And where there seems to be a lot of really good synergy is, you know, when you've got somebody who's farming or ranching and then is a partner biologist with, um, you know, Audubon or mm-hmm. Point Blue Conservation or something like that. And they can actually, you know, have that be supplemental income to their agricultural practice. And they're doing both. Sure. Are you, I think I already know the answer to this, but are you optimistic about where agriculture is going in the U.S.? Because when you hear those stats and you think about that's if that was plotted out on a chart, it's kind of going in the wrong direction. But obviously you're positive and you're passionate about what you're doing. So I'm thinking you're optimistic. <laughs> well, it's it's funny. I don't know that I would call myself optimistic. I, I sort of feel like I can see both sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that we are in um, a circumstance where we need to be extremely proactively looking at this issue, making people be tuned into it. Um, because, you know, it's like the moment is right now yeah. <laughs> that yeah. we have to do something about it. And um, there are a lot of ways in which agriculture is continuing to be um, consolidated into you know, large corporate farms that are not interested in the way that those practices impact the land. It is hugely extractive, um, doesn't foster community at all because all of the wealth is aggregated into, you know, a single corporate entity. Often it takes entire ownership of everything, land, equipment, seeds, the works, you know, out of the hands of community, um, makes it totally undemocratic, um, and and that is happening. That is a reality. Um, and it, on the other side of the coin is we are in a moment where um, we have a deeper understanding and I think more capacity than ever to move in a direction towards regenerative agriculture that is not extractive, that is community-based, that um, supports good ecology. Um, we have those tools. Like We know sure. how to do it. It's really clear how to do it. And so, and you can uh, make more money doing it too. That's the thing is it's not, you know, with the regenerative, at least with, with ranching, if done correctly, you can feel good about the work you're doing on the on environmental level and for the, you know, the, the landscape and, but you'll make more money too. Exactly. So, and that, that's what people, I think people don't fully understand that it's. And I think it also creates a space where you have more control and ownership of, um, what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, sure. Have you ever read Grapes of Wrath? Yeah. I'm reading it right now. And what you're talking about, about the corporate ownership taking over and taking over everything. Yeah, um, it's not a new issue. You know, no. this is an issue that is, you know, 150, 200 years old. Sure. Um, this has always been a tension in agriculture. It's, um, that book is very enlightening. And I've thought a good bit about this stuff, and it still is kind of horrifying when you see that and then you see kind of where it, where it's gone. I just read the part where the guy rams the tractor into their house uh-huh. that at the beginning because they won't leave. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh man. Uh, that stuff. I need to, it makes me so mad, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> um, yeah. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic also. And the other reason that I'm optimistic, um, just to sort of bring it back to this context of podcasts and media yeah. is that I think we also are in a moment where we have the capacity to more quickly disseminate s- stories of success, um, mm-hmm. in regenerative agriculture and to really 
get people engaged in that and sort of bringing it back to the beginning of our conversation. I think that, you know, through social media, because everybody is plugged into it is a really great way to um, increase people's awareness about that conversation, but also through food, you know, it comes back to what shows up on the dinner table and um, you know, the more people can think about that and um, be present with that. I think the more hopeful I will be that we can actually shift the way that we do agriculture and move towards systems that are, um, yeah, not extractive. Well, there's so many young people that seem to be between the ages of 20 and 30. And that's bizarre that I'm calling them young people now that I'm old enough to do that, but, but that are just obsessed with regenerative agriculture. And you, I see a lot of it on online and it's, it's really refreshing to, to, you know, see these people coming out of school that are super smart, could be doing anything they want and they're choosing that. And I've had interactions with a good number of them and it's, it really makes me feel excited about things in the future. Um, I think that's, I think it's great because that, that wasn't a thing when I was that age, you know, at least not in my circles. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, um, it's not a new idea, you know, ideas of organic and biodynamic agriculture are, hundred years old sure. and have been practiced, but not called that for, you know, industrial agriculture is actually what's new. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, it, it probably feels like, I think there are a lot of young people who are really interested and fascinated by regenerative agriculture and are, are choosing that as a path. But I think that they also are the people who are most prevalent, prevalently present, um, in that kind of media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, there are probably fewer, but there are increasingly um, older farmers and ranchers who are getting on board with those ideas and are really excited about them too. Just yeah, last night, I stayed with a fifth generation farm and ranch family in Wyoming, and um, uh, this woman, uh, Reba Epler, and uh, her dad, Casey, and you know, in the you know, I don't know, last five or six years or something, her dad has totally come around and he is jazzed about what um, potential shifting practices to regenerative practices could mean for his land. So, Very cool. Um, One more question along these lines, and then we can do some quick questions. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your annual conference and what, how that goes, when it is, how it goes, goes down, because I'm hoping to attend this year. Excellent. I'm glad you're going to come. Yeah, I want Um, to. So we've done an annual it started as our annual meeting and now has become an annual conference. Uh, this year, the title of the conference is Regenerate, and uh, it will happen October 31st to November 2nd in Albuquerque okay. at the Hotel Albuquerque. This year's conference is um, a little bit of a something new for us. Uh, we decided to collaborate with Holistic Management International and the American Grass-Fed Association. Usually we put the conference on as our own entity. They both were interested in putting on events uh, in the Southwest around the same time. And uh, so we, the directors of all three of those organizations, we sat down and we said, you know, conferences are not very sustainable and we have a lot of overlap in our audience. Why don't we work together to put on this event? And so uh, it's uncharted territory for us to do that. But so far it's been really amazing to work with both of those organizations. And, um, I really like the format of our conference and am kind of constantly thinking about how we can improve it. Um, 
I think that the way that you know, I'm always thinking about education and knowledge exchange. So we do um, single track plenary style conference where it's a series of lectures over the course of two days. Everybody is in the same room together. We usually have 350 to 500 people who come. And what's nice about that is that everybody can leave the lecture hall and have a conversation about what they saw rather than having a bunch of breakout sessions. Um, And then the second part of the conference are a series of roundtables that are really designed to be conversations. So not presentations in small rooms with smaller groups of people, but really setting up a topic and putting in a facilitator who's an expert on that topic, but then letting everybody engage in the conversation. Um, and then the third part will be a series of more practical workshops. So we'll do a regenerating, regenerating rangeland workshop where we're going to work with the Institute for Applied Ecology and an amazing soil scientist named Patrick O'Neill. Uh, and they'll do some very practical kinds of um workshop details. Patrick will talk about how do you do soil monitoring on your ranch and the Institute for Applied Ecology will talk about how you effectively reseed rangeland. Um, so that'll be great. Um, and that's a smart way to do it because I've always found at conferences, the important stuff happens when you're talking with other people at the conference, you know, I mean, I think, and so the fact that you're combining this really useful info and then, allowing you know kind of encouraging a lot of interaction between the attendees because sometimes these things are just so jam-packed you can't even really talk to anybody else and you end up having to skip sessions and stuff like that so that sounds great um fingers crossed i'll be there um that'd be fun yeah we'd love to have you there um so i've got a few quick questions that i ask pretty much everybody on the podcast can we run through those yeah um what is your favorite book related to the west that's a hard question. It's very hard. It's <laughs> funny because I don't have answers to any of these. And one time somebody kind of turned it around and said, what's yours? I was like, oh, oh, oh I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's my favorite, but I was thinking about it driving down here, um, which is The Angle of Repose. That continues to come up, and I haven't um, read it. Really? No. My that... wife read it, and it's, I haven't read it yet. I, I have a problem reading fiction for some reason. Well, you know, that book is not really fiction. That's what I heard. I, my so wife told me that. The, there's an amazing story in this. You probably will have to cut this out. But so 90% of that book is actually um, verbatim quote, quotation from uh, this woman's journals mm-hmm. about her traveling around the West with her husband. Yep. And so in some ways, Wallace Stegner kind of plagiarized yep. that book, but her talking about um, development of water infrastructure in the Western United States is just fascinating. And having it through female perspective is also fascinating because you don't get that very often. Sure. Um, and so that's, yeah, I love that book. I think that is covered in the intro because my wife told me to be sure to, that I read the intro because they talk about that. Yeah. I actually interviewed a guy last week, um, David Gessner, who wrote a double biography about um, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. And he's awesome and hilarious. But he, he said that that's mandatory reading. As I mean, I, I bet a third or a quarter of the people on this podcast have mentioned that book. Yeah, so, it's it's an amazing Read. I'm starting to embarrass myself here by <laughs> not having read it yet. Um, any other ones that come to mind? Um, it's, it's very New Mexico specific, but I, I reference it a lot. There's a book called Resolana, um, mm-hmm. which 
talks a lot about um, the theory and practice of the acequia systems in northern New Mexico. And uh, because I work in New Mexico a lot and because those agricultural waterways are so critical for, you know, overall landscape health, um, I love that book. Um, Cool. I'd not heard of that. You're you're adding to my list big time. (laughs) Um, Do you have any favorite documentaries or films? Yes, and uh, I know. <laughs> Let's come back to that okay, one. Let yeah, me think yeah, about, think about that, that one. one. Um, so, what do you do for fun? You've obviously got. A, oh, I was I excited mean, about this. Question. Your work, your works is obviously very fun to you. Um, but what else do you do? Um, when, when I'm not at work, I feel like I'm actually doing things that are related to work. Yeah, that's uh, a good sign. Yeah, I um, because so much of my work is is like behind a computer, I look for opportunities in my free time to, um, be engaged in agriculture. So I've spent a lot of time helping on a friend's pig farm recently, which I, I love doing. And, um, I help on other people's farms. Uh, I love to cook. Um, and so look for opportunities to sort of do that in a big way. Actually, um, there's a big group of people coming to town next week. And we're going to do a, a whole hog roast. Oh, nice. Um, that's kind of like where I'm from in Eastern North Carolina. We do that. Yeah. That's, that'll be fun. And, uh, and then I, like, I, I love, um, going on a hike or going on a bike ride. What's the, I spent some time in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. What's a hike I should do down there? Is there a favorite hike? Um, I think it depends on the time of year. Um, you know, there's a lot of hikes that are just in close proximity to the city. So those are probably the ones that I do more frequently. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily my most favorite, but, sure. um, there are beautiful hikes in the foothills of the Sandia mountains. Um, the Manzanos I think are really underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're so underutilized that a lot of the trails up there have almost entirely grown over. So oh, if you really? want to go on a hike where you're not going to see anybody going down into the Manzano mountains is really great. And I think that the spring and the fall are really good times to go up when there. the conference is going on. Yep. Yep. <laughs> nice. Um, and I, I sort of feel like you can't go wrong in New Mexico. It's like, you can kind of go hike anywhere. And because I live by the Rio Grande river, I go on a hike down there all the time. Nice. I love walking around in the cottonwoods. Yeah, it's beautiful down there. That landscape is so, um, I guess, kind of foreign. It's so different than anything else in the U.S., and uh, it's beautiful. I'll tell you, I did read the first fiction book I read in six or seven years. I just read, which led to me to start reading Grapes of Wrath. It was called The Painter by Peter Heller, and it's um, about this guy. He's a he's a painter, and but he, he spends a lot of time in northern New Mexico, and the descriptions of northern New Mexico that he puts out is just amazing, and he nails it. It's such a beautiful area. Um, what is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that could be funny, scary, um, just memorable. Is there one thing that sticks out that's like that was an intense experience? Yeah, I I read that question. I was like, I don't I don't even know if I know how to if there are if there is like one actually I'll talk about one experience. Okay. I feel like there are so many. Um but uh last year I went on a the first like 
multi-day rafting trip that I've ever been on and uh, went with a crew of folks from Kavira and uh, my board president is Kate Greenberg who works with the National Young Farmers Coalition. She directs their Western program and is real involved in rivers in the West and she invited us to come along and we floated the Dolores River Okay, for I think six days and uh, I think what was so poignant to me about that um, was that we got to see landscape that had not been very touched by human beings um, very often. So the Dolores River uh, past the McPhee Dam uh, doesn't often have enough water in it to float it. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to have a good water year for there to be enough water released into the river for to put a boat on it. Um, and I think that they'd done some uh, releases the year before that allowed this really short window, like a week where people could be on rafts down that river. But prior to that, it'd been like 12 years and there are large sections of Canyon that the only way really to access them is on a boat. And so, you know, there are these spaces that it's like, there hasn't been a person down here for a decade. And it's really cool to see what's going on with the plants and the animals. Sure. And also, like, how long the impacts of human activity stick around. Um, So I thought that that was really powerful. And um, also just sort of how um, even our most natural spaces are mitigated and impacted by human activity. I think that that really stood out to me on that trip. You know, because part of the reason that it hasn't been touched by humans in 10 years is the fact that there's a dam upstream that's (laughs) that's holding back that water. So there's like a whole interesting series of, you know, events over (laughs) a century that are, you know, creating what that natural space is. That's Yeah, that's really interesting. Something about river trips, just magical. Totally. Um, What is your favorite location in the West, if you had to pick one? And it could be a town be a specific trail a river just any a specific spot that sticks out in your head as being your favorite um i mean i think because i grew up there i would probably have to say the southern black hills mm-hmm. i think it's a it's a spot that um a lot of people sort of know about because they know about mount rushmore or whatever but uh i don't think a lot of people have actually visited there and gone to explore it and it's got totally unique geology you know it's not part of the rockies it's this sort of weird out on its own little mountain range and um the landscape is 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 beautiful and really unique there it really is i've only been through there once and uh, i it's very a very crystal clear memory in my head because it's so different than anything else i've ever seen yeah um so Final question or final big question. If you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast, and so people that love the West in one way or the other, whether they're ranchers or athletes, artists, you know, just just people who have that common shared love of the West, if you could offer some words of wisdom or make a request of them, what would that be? Um, I think it has to do with agriculture. Um, so I think there are two asks. 
One is, is get to know a farmer or rancher and go visit their space and see what they do and ask them questions about the land, because I think it's a, the best way to understand how agriculture is conservation. Um, and then the, the second one is I really love to encourage everybody to be engaged, um, even if it's, you know, in a really basic way in some of their own food production. I think that that also is like the most immediate entry point to, um, being a land conservationist is through producing your own food. And so, uh, you know, even if it's having like a potted tomato on your porch, um, or, you know, volunteering at the community garden one day a month or something, I encourage people to get their hands dirty and, you know, be involved in some way in their own food production. I agree with both of those. So important. So how can people find out more about you, your work, your organization? Um, so you can find the Kavira coalition, online at kaviracoalition.org. We're on most social media channels um, as Kavira Coalition. uh, And podcast. Our podcast is called uh, Down to Earth and can be found at downtoearth.media. I encourage everybody to listen to it and we'd love to hear your feedback on that podcast. It's really good. I listen to it. And it's when you look at the like related podcast to mine, that one, that one's one of the first ones. So I think people, if, if you like listening to this, you get all the benefit without having to listen to my weird Southern accent. (laughs) (laughs) I love your weird Southern accent. Well, thank you so much. This is awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainimperial.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.